This week on Backyard Footy. We went through an entire process last summer in the wake of, of George Floyd and all the other things that were going on in the country um, of changing policies for our police department to make sure that the interactions between our, our police and our citizens um, were, were yielding better outcomes. And if they weren't yielding a good outcome, that there was more of a mechanism to hold folks accountable. Um, so we, we did everything from uh, becoming in full compliance with 8 Can't Wait, which was a national initiative by Campaign Zero. I think we were one of the only like 10 of the top 100 cities in the country that came, that, that came into full compliance with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, uh, I think, a big win. We eliminated tear gas from um, our police's toolkit, essentially. Uh, that was in the wake of uh, a protest gone wrong in our own city, um, where people became sort of trapped in, from, from both sides with tear gas uh, while protesting in June. And, um, and we're currently working on changing our policies around how we serve warrants. And so we all know what happened with Breonna Taylor. Um, we have eliminated no knock warrants wow. in our city, but we are also still trying to work to um, either for, even further strengthen that language so that um, we don't end up in a situation like what, what happened there. What's up, footy fans? It's your host, Hugh Roberts, a.k.a. Superhuman from the Charlotte Independence. I got another very informative episode for you guys, one that I learned a lot from just listening myself. We're here for the 45th episode of Backyard Footy, where each episode I dive into the backgrounds, journeys, and experiences of professional athletes, former athletes, and anyone that's been involved with the game. For my next guest, I have Larkin Eggleston, the District 1 City Council member here in Charlotte. Someone I've gotten the pleasure to know over these past couple of years through a teammate and also a couple of conferences. We briefly go through his campaign, some of his promises that he's been trying to uphold, we talk about the rapid rise of homelessness here in Charlotte with Tent City and what's that been like and how the city helped this homeless get into a, a better solution. We talk about last year with the movement, Black Lives Matter movement and George Floyd passing, how it affected the city, what the city did behind the scenes to you know, accommodate us. And, you know, of course, they had to ask them the hard hitting questions about what's going on as well in the community. And lastly, we went through an article from the Brookings Institute as well, highlighting the issues and lack of diversity in the corporate industry. So a lot of great informative news and information that you guys need to take away from. And I'm excited to share with everyone. So without further ado, let's get started. Sorry, Ms. Larkin. How's everything? I appreciate you joining the show. Yes, sir. It gave me a good excuse to rock my uh, independence jersey. So, Of course, of course, of course. <laughs> it looks good on you. I'll make sure you make sure to see you at a couple games this year too. I got you with some tickets too up in the um, new Uptown Stadium. I enjoyed. Uh, it was it was odd but fun last year. I got to come to a couple of games as one of the only like couple of dozen fans that was able to come to some of the, uh, yeah, the matches last yeah. year. Yeah, and um, it was odd to be one of the only people there. Although y'all had a great season, so it was a fun season to come. And it also meant that all of the heckling that I like to do yeah. towards the other team was very, very audible because yeah. there were no other there was no other noise in the stadium. So when I was giving the other teams a hard time, uh, they could hear it and oftentimes responded, including a, a little bit of a post game altercation or not altercation. We didn't actually get uh, it was not physical, but a verbal altercation between me and and soccer legend Tim Howard after one of the games, which was... I'll never uh, forget that. I'll never I won't either, because uh, he is a large man, and he was very yeah. angry. Right, right, right. And he and we were right <laughs> beside him on the field, so when he was angry, I looked to my left, and I was like, oh, man, <laughs> I'll let you guys handle I thought I thought I had messed up severely that <laughs> night. <laughs> oh, man. But now, I appreciate you joining us today, though. So for our guests, you mind giving us a quick background on how you got started and how you got your position as a city council member? 
Yeah, so uh, I'm Larkin Eggleston. I'm in my second term on the Charlotte City Council as the representative for District 1 uh, in the next election, which uh, we might talk about could potentially be delayed because of census uh, delays from COVID-19. But I, I've decided that I'm going to run citywide for one of the at-large nice. seats. Nice. Um, but I am originally from Winston-Salem, went to Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, and I've been in the Charlotte area since 2004. Um, wasn't particularly politically active growing up, but um, you know, grew up in a family where my, my parents exhibited that service and, and giving back to the community. For them, it wasn't a political thing. It was just community service. And right. so always had that sense um, from my upbringing that, that you give back to the community that you live in, you make it a better place. Mm -hmm. And for me, as I started to, to find ways to do that in Charlotte, it led me towards a, a path of politics. And as I got engaged on certain issues and realized that some of those decisions were being made at a, at a political table. And that if I wasn't at that table, I might ha not have a voice. I might not have an impact on steering that issue in whatever direction I felt was going to be best for the most people in Charlotte. And so um, started to kind of dip my toe in the waters, um, getting involved with the young Democrats of, of Mecklenburg County, um, the state democratic party, working on other folks' campaigns and sort of learn the game that way. And in 2017 decided that it was instead of, you know, having a seat at the table with the people who were making the decisions. I wanted to be one of the people at the table with the ability to make that decision and to cast that vote. Right. And um, so I, I made the decision to run against a 14 year incumbent uh, who was also a former mayor of Charlotte, um, was not expected to win. And, uh, but, but we had a great team and we ran a, a hard and long race and managed to, to win by a couple of hundred votes. And wow. then, um, wow. So it's been an incredible experience um, and being on the city council in the 15th largest city in the country is not something, you know, 10 years ago I could have imagined, but it's been an incredible opportunity. I feel like we've made a lot of progress on the issues that I ran saying I wanted to make progress on. So I'm proud of what we've accomplished, but as you know, a city growing as fast as ours, there's always going to be new challenges. There's always going to be things that we have to be mindful of and getting ahead of. And, um, and so I hope to be able to continue that service in the next term. Of course, as the district one city council member, what's your specific role? Is it you pertaining to a certain district as you know, district one kind of thing? It's a little bit of, of both as a district rep and there are, the city of Charlotte has seven district reps. Um, they have four citywide council members and then the mayor is elected separately. Gotcha. Uh, each city is a little different, but um, so we've got 11 council members and the mayor is the 12th. The mayor doesn't vote unless there's a tie, but she has a lot of other roles and responsibilities and powers. Um, so as a district rep, part of what you're doing is you are that first line of defense for the people who live in your, in your part of town. And so I represent 30 some neighborhoods and anybody in one of those neighborhoods with anything from a pothole or a street light being out or the garbage didn't get picked up, I'm probably the one they're going to reach out to. And so you deal with a lot of those day-to-day, -day, um, issues that, you know, just impact that one person maybe, or that one street. And so it's a great way to get to know the communities in your district. Right. It's a great way to get to understand some of the departments and the inner workings of, of how our local government works. Uh, but what it didn't allow for me was as much time as I wanted to be able to work on the things that impact the whole city right. and some of the planning efforts that will have, you know, impacts for 10, 20, 50 right. years on our city. And so um, that to me is the, the cause for making this transition to a citywide representative but yeah, at the district level, you're really that kind of on the, you know, boots on the ground. Right. You're at the community meetings every month. Um, you're at the neighborhood, you know, festival or whatever. And people are coming up and telling you, you know, what might seem like a small issue, but if it's, if it's impacting your everyday life at, on your street, uh, it's not small to you. And so um, it, it really is an interesting role because we, we make decisions for the whole city. My vote is on anything that if that the city council votes on, it counts just as much as the citywide representatives, but also playing that liaison role between the neighborhoods and the city government um, at the district level. Which neighborhoods in this area are you um, watching over? So it's a it's a pretty big district. It's really, if you look at a map of Charlotte, District 1 is in dead center. Uh, we, I'm surrounded by all the other districts. And so I've got everything from Uptown, I've got the North End, I've got Noda and Plaza Midwood, Dilworth and wow. Sedgefield. Cotswold, Myers Park, and Eastover. Um, it, it really stretches. And one of the things I like about it is also one of the biggest challenges. It is arguably the most economically diverse district in the city. So in a lot of the other corners of the city, 
you have there's still a lot of diversity anywhere you go in Charlotte. Um, but in terms of you look at some of the historically disinvested communities, communities that have not seen um, a lot of, of go where government has not really done a lot to, to improve them and, and maintain the quality of life there. And you see other parts of the city where there are, you know, these this generational wealth and this, um, right. you know, kind of that old money of Charlotte and um, some of the, you know, most exclusive country clubs and some of the biggest mansions. And, and then I've got other parts of town um, where they haven't seen any investment in 50 years. And so for me, I think it gives me uh, a, a perspective I really appreciate, which is I can't get blinded and think that like everybody in our city is doing well or everybody in our city is not. Right. I get to see both sides of that every day doing this job. And so it kind of helps keep me grounded between um, that, that, that people in both those camps do have needs. Communities in every part of our city do have needs, but they're very different needs. Yeah. Um, and, and what, how we look to help different parts of our city have to be tailored to that specific community and what their specific needs are. Um, so it, for me, it's, I think I get the, the best of both worlds because I get that fully rounded perspective and, you know, I, I don't get kind of blinders on and think that it's all, all one certain kind of way because, uh, you don't have to drive far in my district to go from the haves to the have nots. And um, we've got to find a way to, to serve everyone in our community equitably. Exactly. And that's good information for me to know. I didn't know district one was, you know, pretty much all of uptown South End area and very popular areas that's growing like crazy too. So and I don't, I don't technically have South End, but I've got the other side of South Boulevard from South End. So gotcha. all of that growth in South End is certainly impacting people in my district as right. well. Right, right, right. Very true. Let's, let's talk about your camp, your campaign a little bit over the years. So I know you fought for affordable housing set up to protect women's reproductive rights, expanding existing transportation system and helping preserve their environment. How's it been over these couple of years trying to uphold your campaign promises and also what's been like the struggles? Yeah, like I said, I think we've done a really good job and, and I'm certainly not the only person that, um, that ran wanting to focus on affordable housing in, in particular. And so the, this council, when I was elected in 2017 and in Charlotte, we only served two year terms. So um, on my second term now I was reelected in 2019, but the group of us that came in and one of the interesting things about the sort of freshman class I came in with was out of this 11 members on the Charlotte city council, the 2015 election, there was no one under the age of 40 elected. In 2017, there were six of us under the age of 40 elected. So you had this huge, huge shift in terms of I, mean, I think our average age dropped 23 years or something on the city council. Um, so there was a lot of new energy, a lot of new ideas. And one of the things that a lot of us ran talking about was that we can't keep trying to, the city's been trying to tackle an affordable housing crisis for a long time and they've done some good work, but we, we were falling behind because as our city is growing as fast as it is, the efforts behind trying to tackle this affordable housing crisis weren't even keeping up with our growth. We were losing ground. And so we came in and, and to her credit, um, a lot of this discussion was being led by the new mayor who was elected in 2017, Vi Lyles, who had been, who's Charlotte's first black female mayor ever, um, had been on the city council for two terms prior to being elected mayor. And she came in and, and with our support and, and her leadership, we said, this $15 million that we've been putting out as an affordable housing bond every two years is not gonna cut it. It's not, we're not gonna make any progress um, we're going to keep losing ground. And so we came in and said, uh, collectively, this is going to be a $50 million affordable housing bond. And we put that on the ballot in 2018. It passed overwhelmingly. We did it again in 2020. It passed overwhelmingly. So $50 million over the last two bond cycles for a total of $100 million, much of which we've been able to bring in matches from the private sector too. So the amount of investment that's being made on affordable housing is exponentially more than it had been leading up to that 2017 timeframe. Um, so we've made a lot of headway there. Still a long way to go. Um, as we grow as quickly as we're growing, that pressure on the real estate market is going to continue to drive up the prices both to be a homeowner or to rent in our community and in all parts of our community. So part of what we're looking at now is how do we create diversity and price points in all different parts of Charlotte. And so we're, we're looking at doing that through some regulatory and zoning changes um, in our long-term land use plans. We're trying to create a transit system. Transit's another big thing I ran on. We've completed um, the blue line extension that goes up to UNC Charlotte. And I think that was in 2017 or 2018. 
We're almost done with phase two of the Gold Line Streetcar, which will go from Johnson C. Smith University on the west side over to Central Avenue and Hawthorne on the east side. Um, and now we're, we're looking at on the next ballot, putting forward a transit a mobility tax initiative for voters to vote on that would create uh, multiple other rail lines through our community, improve our bus service, improve our greenway systems, improve our sidewalk connectivity for all the people that walk in our community um, so that you don't have to own a car in this community. Or if you have one, you don't always have to use it to get where you're going. Right. And creating that connectivity makes it more viable to people for people to live a little further from downtown um, because if they can get there on a train or they can get there on a bus that's reliable and gets them there in an efficient manner, then they can live a little further away from town where the housing might be a little bit more affordable. So trying to create those interconnected, uh, this interconnected community uh, will help us on the housing front too. And so we've made a lot of headway and I think uh, have some big ideas and big opportunities in front of us on transit. Um, you know, on the environment, I think Charlotte's been a leader. We were, uh, we were recognized by um, Bloomberg and all the work that he's doing around we, we've created a strategic energy action plan. We've just bought some of the first electric buses that the city's ever had. And you can see those out at the airport. They're the, the buses that shuttle you from the parking to the airport terminal. Uh, I didn't know they were solar powered. That's nice. Yeah. And um, so we're trying to transition uh, away from, you know, from, from carbon-based fuels and, and um, lower the city's carbon footprint and a lot of what we're doing in this new comprehensive plan that talks about how land use, how our city will be built a lot of it has got that lens over top of it, not only an equity lens um, on how these things impact people, but a lens on how these things impact our environment and uh, which has a direct impact on people. Because if, if you live in an area that has poor water quality or air quality, you know, we've seen what that can, what kind of impact that can have on people's lives. And you don't have to look any further than Flint, Michigan to know what sort of impact environmental quality issues can have on someone's quality of life. Right. And so, um, yeah, I, th I think we've made a lot of progress. And again, with a city that's one of the fastest growing in the country, we are going to continue to face those challenges and new challenges. Um, so I'll never say that we've, we've gotten where we need to be because we never will. Um, but we've got to constantly be pushing in, the, in that direction. And I think we've made a lot of headway in three years. Yeah, in my years here, this is not going on my, my third year here. I've honestly seen a lot of, a lot of homeless rates starting to, starting to increase rapidly. Tent City, as it's known here for, you know, the little area where all the homeless have their tents right outside Uptown has been almost booming. I saw a couple of weeks ago, it's like rat infested and diseases were going on in there. I also started my Footy's Got You found back, Footy's Got You Foundation through Backyard Footy last year and I partnered with Block Love, raising money to help the homeless there. And one of their problems was, you know, of course getting food every day of course, getting breakfast, but, you know, this housing crisis has really been, you know, a problem, especially because of COVID and everything. So, you know, what, not only what does the city do to help plan fix this, but how can I help as well and help the city, you know, continue to grow, grow this from a, a groundswork um, point of view? Well, thank you for everything you've already done. I mean, there were so many groups, um, what you were doing, what Block Love was doing, um, you know, some of them were those more formal institutions like Roof Above, Salvation Army, whatever. But there were so many grassroots groups that were doing great work too. And I think one of the big things we kept um, trying to hammer home and, and Block Love was really good about this was these efforts have to be coordinated for, for this, for the, for the investment that you make of your time, of your resources, um, of your efforts. For it to have the most impact, we need to make sure that everything we're doing is coordinated because one of the challenges we faced was some people didn't know how to help and so they would just drop stuff off down there uh, and it wasn't coordinated. And so in a couple of instances, we had people drop off boxes of children's clothes. Well, there weren't children in Tent City. We had people just dropping off perishable food in a box on the side of the road and not really like even distributing it or telling anybody that they'd done it. They just like, were like, I don't know what to do. Someone just dropped this stuff off. Um, and that's actually what led to a lot of the rat infestation was all this perishable food um, that was being dropped off in an uncoordinated manner and much of it was going to waste. And then that was attracting uh, rats and other things. So um, a big part of everything we do on that issue and every issue has to just be coordination to make sure we know who's doing what and what's the best way to help. Um, and it's human nature for us to drive into that area and see what's going on there and go, I have to do something. Right. But if you don't know how to help, ask someone who's on the ground, like a block love, um, like a roof above, someone who's there on a day-to-day -day basis and can say, here's what we need and here's what we don't need.
Um, so, I mean, you know, so much of an outpouring of support uh, from the community. The county, when they made the decision that the camp had to be cleared, it, it really had become a serious public health crisis. And so they've gotten almost all of those people, um, everyone was offered, but almost everyone accepted the offer of being rehoused in, a mo in some motels that had been repurposed uh, for that reason. And, um, you know, most of what we saw at Tent City was not people who were newly homeless because of COVID. It was people who had been chronically homeless prior mm -hmm. to COVID. We really didn't have, because of the eviction moratoriums and stuff, we didn't have a lot of new people becoming homeless because of COVID, though that could happen in the future right. um, as, as this eviction moratorium sort of sunsets. And so that's the city's big role is how do we create housing for the working poor right. um, that they can afford and, and how do we mi minimize the amount of displacement that could happen? And so we were very involved in trying to help people with rent payments that were falling behind, utility payments that were falling behind. And we're constantly trying to create affordable housing at each, you know, whether you make minimum wage or whether you make $15 an hour or whether you make whatever. Every, every level of income, we want to have housing in our community that people at that income level can afford. Um, the county is really the lead agency on the homeless services piece. And so they've been doing a lot of work, like I said, in rehousing these folks in motels and trying to connect them with the services that they need, whether it's to address a mental health issue, a substance abuse issue, whatever it is, um, they've got all those wraparound services and they're trying to use this as an opportunity to get people connected to the services they need. Because if someone's got a mental health issue and a substance abuse issue um, or you know whatever it is, if they're a disabled veteran, if they're whatever, we can't necessarily just plug that person right into a job in an apartment and expect for them to be able to succeed. We've got to help them address some of those underlying issues first. So, um, you know, the tent city was a visual manifestation of a problem that already existed. It was a concentration of people who had been more spread out and more hidden, maybe just behind the tree line in the woods or something. And they were there all along, but because folks didn't see them, it never really hit them that we've got this big homeless problem in our city. And, and it, this was happening all across cities all across the country. Um, but they came to that area partly because that's where so many of those service providers are. That's where so many of the places that they can get a, a hot meal or a shower or you know whatever it is, a, a bed to lay their head in at night. That's where so many of them were. It created a more difficult circumstance still that you couldn't necessarily always have people in the shelters at the in the amounts that we would have previous because of the pandemic. Right, and right. so you, you can't put um, you know, several hundred people two feet away from each other in a shelter um, like you might have before. And so there's a lot that the city and the county have been doing and continue to do. There's a new shelter that's going to be opening on Statesville Avenue that the city and the county invested in um, that Roof Above will be leading a lot of private dollars behind that too. Um, so I think we've got some, some good things on the horizon on that front, certainly getting past the pandemic, making sure that we get our homeless population vaccinated so that they're safe in that regard. Um, I think we're going to start to see some improvement, but it's a problem that we'll frankly never solve. We just have to keep, uh, and there's some people who don't want to be housed. There are some people who will literally say, this is how I want to live. I want to be outside. I want to have my freedom. And, um, so, but we have to at least make sure that people have the opportunity to connect with, with the services they need to address the, the issues that they might have in their life. And I think um, we continue to try to do that. And it's, uh, it's just something you got to be constantly focused on and working on. Right. And this is great info for me to know, because, you know, as, as I mentioned, my foundation, I'm trying to do things on the groundwork level to help the community as well. But to, just to hear the fact that you guys already have another, you know, facility getting ready to be open and a shelter for them. Not only that, though, but you touched on the mental side, because this is taking a toll on everybody, especially mentally. It's, it's very hard to just hop into a job world or go into the corporate world or any industry really and just come from this environment where you're struggling and hop in expected, expected to do everything 100%. It's very tough. So it's good to hear that not only from the housing standpoint, but from like the mental side too, to help people grow. That's definitely important. It's something that I've been trying to hone in on myself. So well, if, you, if you're interested in doing um, an episode really more hyper-focused on that issue, I'd, I'd be happy to connect you with um, like Liz Clayson Kelly, who's yeah. the CEO yeah. of Roof Above, um, which is the merger of the old Men's Shelter of Charlotte and Urban Ministry Center, as well as Anthony Trotman, who's an assistant county manager that's really been leading the efforts from the county side. Um, I know they'd be, I'm sure, glad to talk to you and, and maybe we'd get you a tour 
of the new facility as it gets closer to coming online. That'd be awesome. Um, because just because we, just because Tent City is not there anymore, doesn't mean the problem is not there anymore. Right. And so right. there's still a lot of work to do. It just is going to look different from here forward. And even in that front too, I would love to partner somewhere. Right now, I'm in the works of trying to create like a breakfast program too. So even if we can partner somehow where I'm um, channeling some meals or something, you know, and help out the homeless as well in that front too, is something that I would love to participate on as well. So definitely after the show, love that connect and connect with them as well too, to hear what they've been working on. Last year, we saw an impactful year with protests all across the country after George Floyd and everything that's been going on. You know, here in Charlotte as well, there was protests, peaceful protests as well, you know, throughout the city. What were the initial thoughts from the city council? And, you know, how can he, here, specifically in Charlotte, we can do to help improve the racial disparities going on here? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a really, so I'm the chair of the Community Safety Committee. And it was a really interesting year to be the chair of the Community Safety Committee because we were at the same time facing two related but separate crises as it uh, that pertain to community safety. Um, we had one of the most violent years in a long time in our city. And at the same time, there was a national call to examine the way that, you know, policies and, and um, protocols and things around police department and, and how they interact with the public. Um, so on one side of the coin, you had people saying there's, you know, Charlotte feels more dangerous. People are dying in our streets and we need more of a law enforcement presence. And on the other side of the coin, you have people saying, but we need a law enforcement presence that's going to be held accountable and that's going to treat people with the dignity and respect and, and, and equity that they deserve um, and not have different outcomes for different people in our community based on the color of their skin or what part of the city they live in. Um, we also went through a transition in our police chief during all this time. So it was, it was a, a quite a year to be trying to lead those efforts, but I, I think we did a, a pretty capable, we, I think we did a pretty good job at that. Um, we went through an entire process last summer in the wake of, of George Floyd and all the other things that were going on in the country um, of changing policies for our police department to make sure that the interactions between our, our police and our citizens um, were, were yielding better outcomes. And if they weren't yielding a good outcome, that there was more of a mechanism to hold folks accountable. Um, so we, we did everything from uh, becoming in full compliance with Eight Can't Wait, which was a national initiative by Campaign Zero. I think we were one of the only like 10 of the top 100 cities in the country that came, that, that came into full compliance with that. Um, so that was, uh, I think a big win. We eliminated tear gas from, um, our police's toolkit, essentially. Uh, that was in the wake of, uh, a protest gone wrong in our own city, um, where people became sort of trapped in from, from both sides with tear gas, uh, while protesting in June. And, um, and we're currently working on, changing our policies around how we serve warrants. And so we all know what happened with Breonna Taylor. Um, we have eliminated no knock warrants wow. in our city, but we are also still trying to work to um, either for even further strengthen that language so that um, we don't end up in a situation like what, what happened there. And so we have done a lot, I think, and it, what I'm proud of, and I know that obviously yeah, that's such a polarizing issue in our community and in the country that people feel like, you know, it's hard for someone to, if you feel like you either have to be like pro-police or anti-police and there's like no in-between. To me, there's always going to be a need for a law enforcement presence, particularly in a large city, but it needs to be one that, that we are confident as being we're, we're very selective about who we bring in in the first place. We have a very high bar for the training and expectations of those people. And that when mistakes are made, that they'll be held accountable. Uh, and we aren't in full control of that because some of that's part of the, you know, the justice system and that's not our lane, but we can do what we can do as far as it relates to our police department. And, and we have, um, I will tell you that our new chief, Johnny Jennings has been an incredible partner. And um, I had, I had a, fine relationship with Kerr Putney, our previous chief, 
but Johnny Jennings has come in and has been willing to work side by side with us on these efforts and not, you know, it hasn't been me and him fighting each other over what we we're going to do. It's been us figuring out what can we do and how can we do it together. So right. uh, I couldn't ask for a better partner as a police chief uh, than Chief Jennings has been, uh, been very encouraged by that. Um, the other thing we've been trying to do is, again, somewhat related, but, but, but separate from that is how do we address the violent crime that's occurring in our community? Most of the violent crime in our community is young men. Most of it is people who are known to each other. Um, there's not a lot of random violence in our community, which is somewhat assuring, but there's a lot of, of known persons and most of it stems from a, a conflict resolution issue. There is some conflict, oftentimes what you and I might consider minor where, um, you know, maybe when we were kids, you'd gotten in a little bit of a scrap, you know, out at the, at the park or something, but it was a fist fight right. or it, but now it's not, it's now people are bringing guns to these. And, and these are kids that are 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. Um, and just over some, some be, minor B for industry, you know, something that you and I can't, you know, when we were younger, wouldn't have dreamed of letting escalate to that point. And now it, it, it is. And so we're looking at this from a different viewpoint now, because um, these are things that are, that are bubbling up um, and we ought to be able to see them coming. This is not, again, it's not random violence. Mm -hmm. um, and, and now so much of this beef is happening online that if you can kind of track some of that stuff, you can sort of spot where this might be coming. A lot of our crime is also happening in very specific geographies of our community. And so how do we get in and focus in those communities to help with conflict, conflict resolution? Um, we've started saying this violence is really a public health crisis at this point. And how do we treat it like a public health crisis? How do we use data um, and all the information that we can gather in this day and age? How do we use that to inform where the problems might be um, based on where they have been or based on what we're seeing in terms of two groups that might have some sort of conflict going on and, and we try to get involved before it escalates to where somebody's using a gun. Right. Um, so we have, we're working with a, a model and an organization called Cure Violence. Mm -hmm. um, they come in and they are training people in the community who are trusted in the community. And so these aren't police officers. These aren't uh, elected officials or anything like that. These are people who live in those communities training them to be these mediators and help them with leading that conflict resolution, identifying where there's going to be a problem or that somebody's got an issue with somebody and, and we're trying to make sure it doesn't lead to that. So um, we're also making investments in those corridors. So uh, Beatty's Ford and LaSalle, that's one of the areas where we have seen a higher amount of violent crime in our community than others. So it's not just about, all right, let's get in there and work on the violence piece, it's how do we invest in that corridor to create more opportunities for people? Because we know a lot of this crime stems from a lack of opportunity. Um, right. How can we invest in those communities to create more jobs, to create right. um, a safer environment, just to create a better quality of life for people that's gonna lead them to be less likely to walk down that wrong path. And so, you know, it's, it's really tried, we've tried to take this 360 approach around how do we improve our police department, but also how do we address the violence um, that's in our community that we need our police department for. But it doesn't always have to be the police department. If somebody's experiencing a mental health crisis and has a gun, it might not be a police officer that they need to, to see. Right. Um, right. Now, a police officer might need to be there if needed, but how do, a police officer is not a, a trained, you know, we give them a base level of training on how to deal with someone in a mental health crisis, but why not send a mental health therapist mm -hmm. alongside. And that's something my wife actually did with the Durham police department before she moved here. She would go on calls as a trained therapist, not as a trained officer, but she was with an officer and she would help deescalate, um, use crisis intervention training models and things to deescalate some of those situations. And oftentimes then the police officer wasn't necessary. So, you know, how do we make sure our officers are trained, but also that we're sending the right person for the right job? Because what we've seen is that throughout the country, as you know, departments that deal with mental health are getting less and less funding, we just ask the police officers to pick up the slack. We say, well, uh, you're going to be there anyway, so uh, why don't you handle it? We'll give you like a two-day training or a week-long training, and you, you de-escalate that situation. 
I still want them to get that training because everyone needs to have that base level of knowledge around those type of issues. But why not send in someone who's got a decade or decades worth of training on how to deal with someone in a mental health crisis to be that first line of defense? And so it's things like that where, you know, the calls to defund the police, I think, when you really unpacked what people were asking for when they were talking about defunding the police, I I referred to it as reimagining the police um, because it's not necessarily just about like, let's cut their budget. It's about, let's figure out how to just be more efficient and effective and and use the right tool for the right task. And oftentimes we weren't, we were just saying, whatever we don't have the resources to deal with, we'll let police deal with it. That wasn't yielding good outcomes. So we had to reimagine how we we try to tackle those challenges. And I think we're on a, a pretty good track to doing that. You touched on a lot of key points and especially even this mental health aspect. You know, a lot of times we go through our, a lot of mental issues and then a police gets thrown and there's already tension and it always escalates into something further than it needs to be. And not only that, I mean, the accountability piece that you touched on too is something that we we as the communities is something that we cry on a lot. I mean, of course, not just you know, holding police accountable, but, you know, it's kind of the hypocrisy of sometimes we might be charged with certain things where it could be minuscule, but we get, you know, sentenced for X amount where you see on the other side, it's the same kind of offense for something that's lesser too. So it's great to hear that you're, you know, touching on this accounting accountability part, because that's how we kind of feel in, in the community. It's just like, it's not necessarily like holding just the police accountable, it's just the, the hypocrisy side, sorry, as well as, you know, seeing the same offenses for different sides. I think ultimately, you know, back in the day, they used to have the foot patrol where you walk through the neighborhoods, the police would walk through the neighborhoods, there'd be a decent relationship with all the neighbors and community. I'm not saying, and we really can't go back to those times now we have cars and social media, but I think there's a big gap in education that's missing where I'm not saying you're not educating the police in terms of us, what we go through, but in terms of just the regular relationships where they're able to go to the community and you know the neighbors, you know the kids, you know the community, you know you know, the cookouts that we have, you know, what's going on. So when you go into the environment, you don't really have some pre-judgmental notions already of, you know, a certain race. You already have an understanding of the culture. So going in, you might not have some certain biases where, you know, you get a call for, you know, a mental issue with one of us that's going on. Well, okay, well, you understand the mental side, you understand the community, you, you already know also the family as well. So, you know, the kid He's really not a harmful kid and the parents raised him well, that kind of thing. So obviously, like I said, I mentioned this back then, but I still think that educational gap where we don't necessarily get outside of our bubbles to understand a different race is really missing. It's something that I've also been harping on for the past couple of months or honestly a year since I've been speaking out last year of the whole movement and everything. But that educational piece from you know all races and all sides is missing because it's creating a lot of discomfort since you don't know the other race. And then as soon as you step into that zone, boom, things escalate. And I think the awareness part is, is key. And, and it's great to hear that, you know, you're educating them, not just from the groundwork standpoint, but from the mental side, the accountability side. And these are things that, you know, we've been wanting to change for a while. And especially that no knock warrant too. I didn't know that happened here in Charlotte as well. I thought it was just in Louisville. So that's good to know from my end too. Well, and, and there was not, to be fair, this was not a, a tool that the CMPD was utilizing on a regular basis and in fact it had been a long time since they had done one but but we just said hey let's go ahead and just take that off the table let's not have that even be an option in our police department so um you know kudos to them that they weren't utilizing that uh, but the tool was still in the toolbox and we said let's take it out because particularly if you're not using it you don't need it let's just say it's not going to be because maybe some leadership comes down the road and says well let's start using those again we don't want to have that as an option and i will say you know we're not going to get back to maybe what you were talking about completely because the world has just changed, but we do have a lot of our officers that are trying to get out of their cars more mm-hmm. because if all you ever do is drive through the neighborhood, you're not going to know the neighborhood. If you walk the neighborhood or you're on a bike um, and we do have a lot of officers and I get to see it because I'm at all these community meetings that are attending neighborhood meetings. They're, they're coming and giving updates and answering questions and they're getting out of their cars and engaging people um, not, you know, not to harass them, but to just say, you know, hey man, what, you know, I've seen, I've literally seen some of our community officers trying to help connect people that are coming, you know, maybe they just got out of jail and they're back on the streets and they can see that they're headed down the wrong path again. I've, I've seen one of them connect a guy to an opportunity to get his, his uh, commercial driver's license and drive a truck. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, let me help connect, let me help connect you to this job opportunity. 
or, or whatever it is. And so I do know that we have officers that are doing great work in terms of building those relationships and understanding the communities that they are, they are protect, there to protect and serve instead of just driving through and having that um, lack of knowledge about somebody so that when they do end up in that volatile situation, there is no trust there um, because, because neither side has, has sought to build that trust. I know our officers are, are out there doing that and doing it well in most cases. That's, that's great to know. So lastly, for me, I wanted to pull up this article for you. I'm gonna pull up for you right now from Brookings. Can you see this? Mm -hmm. So a mission that I've been on personally for a while now, um, you know, me personally, but also I'm a, one of the co-executive members for the USLBPA, the Black Players Alliance that we just formed last year. And one of our missions is to enact change in almost all positions, especially the higher up positions, you know, more presidents of clubs, black ownership and, and coaches as well. So Brookings here, it's a nonprofit um, public policy organization in DC, but they conducted some, um, some studies across the country. And one of them was here in, in Charlotte as well. And so what Brookings did they brought together, you know, the race prosperity, the inclusion initiative. This is an initiative that going on. Charlotte was one of the main cities, and here they're, you know, motivated by previous research to figure out, you know, this from the social aspect, how can we create more diversity? So I wanted to share this with you and also touch on some things as well. So the, one of the first topics that they have here as well is race is the most important and consistent differentiator of social networks. So for example, in D.C., 90% of, of people in white networks and jobs also hire, you know white employees as well. They continue and then go down with more statistics. Black males tended to have the least robust networks for jobs and education. Um, for blacks in the communities, outside of families and education and networks, we primarily focus our work through education, meaning we get most of our contacts through, you know, our school work and stuff. And low income participants in Charlotte and San Francisco have very small social networks. So higher income groups also have fewer people in their networks, those kind of things. So, you know, we're going to touch on some more things, of course, desegregate communities, more so, you know, making more communities more inclusive. You did mention some things as well, but I wanted to touch on that, especially from the business corporate standpoint of how can we, you know, get more and maybe what's the city's plans as well to diversify some of the working environments and, and give us more opportunities in higher positions. Yeah, I mean, so that is, and people will recall, I think it was 2015 or 2016 when Charlotte ranked 50th out of 50 in terms of upward mobility, which essentially was saying, if you're born in the lowest um, economic strata, your chances of getting to the top one are lower in Charlotte than any of the other top 50 cities in the country. Um, and that was a huge embarrassment for our city. Um, yeah, it was a lot of shame that came along with that, but I think it might've been the best thing that could have happened to us because if we'd have finished 42nd out of 50 or something, I don't think anybody would have ever really talked about it. And it just said, Oh, that's a shame. I wish we could do better on that. But by, by being dead last, you couldn't ignore it. And it became, I think a rallying cry for Charlotte to say, how did we get to this place? How in the world did we end up 50th out of 50? We see so much opportunity in Charlotte. We see so much prosperity in Charlotte. Why is that not benefiting more people in Charlotte? Right. Um, and so I do think it's been at the core of everything that the city, and I don't just mean the city of Charlotte, like government, I mean, the city of Charlotte, um, private sector, public sector, the community as a whole, I think it's been at the core of a lot of the work that's happened in the five years since then. And I think that's a good thing. Um, and one of the things that, that it led to an understanding of was this idea, and, it, and you've got it there at the top of the article, it talks about, it says it differently, but, um, we often hear it referred to as social capital. And that social capital is that relationship that you have that opens a door for you that might not have otherwise been opened. Right. And, and someone might be just as capable as someone else, but if they didn't have that same relationship that opened that door for them, they're going to get the opportunity the other person's not. And so because we have created through oftentimes through government policy, we have created segregated communities, segregated neighborhoods, you don't have as much of an opportunity to have that diverse social network and that, that stronger social capital. Um, and then sometimes we self-segregate and we just associate with people that are most like ourselves. And so it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that if we live in neighborhoods, if I live in a neighborhood that's all white, you live in a neighborhood that's all black. And then by nature of, of some of what you've just laid out here in this study, 
I might work with a group of people that are mostly white. You might work with a group of people that are mostly black. I mean, who are you going to hang out with? You're going to hang out with the people you live around or the people you work with mostly. Um, Where else is the average person making friends or, you know, finding the the folks that they're going to spend their time with. And so if we don't figure out how to break that cycle, um, it's just going to continue to perpetuate from, you know, our generation to our children's generation and, and forward. So a lot of that is, we do need as a as a corporate culture we need to be more focused on diversity we need to make sure that the board of directors at, at a corporation or at some of these high profile nonprofits at a conversation with a group that is focused on diversity in the arts just earlier this week and we talked about that we said let's do an analysis of the boards of some of these very high profile arts institutions arts institutions and make sure that their board reflects the diversity that we see in our community as a whole. Because if it doesn't, then that black artist or that um, you know, Asian artist or that whatever non-white artist, if the board is all white, you can bet that a lot of the programming that a, people that get hired to the leadership roles in that might oftentimes also be white because that's the network of people that they know. Right. Um, right. So you know, it's a top to bottom thing. There's, there's certain things that I think we as a local government can do to help on this front but it really has to be a call for it from every corner of the community to say, we need to see diversity in our workplaces. We need to create, and this is a longer term solution, but we need to have communities that are more diverse. And it's not just having black people and white people living in the same neighborhood. It needs to be economic diversity. It needs to be that someone who's LGBT feels comfortable living in any part of our city, that someone who maybe English is not their first language and comes from wherever they might come from in the world can, can right. feel comfortable living in different parts of our city and don't feel like they just have to live in the area where most of the people from their country or their region live, exactly. um, which is what we see right now. And, and I'm privileged to be the representative for part of that, what I would kind of call our international corridor down Central Avenue. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful community that is built up of, of so many of the immigrants and, and one in six people in Charlotte are foreign born. Mm. So, I mean, the diversity here, is incredible. And if we, the more we start to view that as an asset instead of a challenge, I think the stronger we'll be. And you break down these silos and you create that more interconnected social network that that builds social capital for people that creates opportunities for them to get a foot in the door that they've never been able to get in the door before. Um, So I I do think as embarrassing as it was for Charlotte to be dead last in that ranking, it was a wake up call that we, we probably really needed. And I don't think we'd have I don't think we'd have heeded that call as, as well as we did if we'd have been 42nd or 47th or whatever, but, but being last was like, we got to do something about this. And I'm, so I'm kind of glad that it, it happened because sometimes you got to hit rock bottom mm-hmm. to, to figure out that it's time to, to do something differently. These things kind of happen for a reason too. And like you're saying, um, it, it brought awareness to everything and now things are kind of changing. And also I feel like it, it kind of ties hand in hand. We were talking about before, you know, the police reform and everything too. If you're only hiring like, you know, people are with the same kinfolk as you, you're not getting outside of your bubbles. When you go outside of work, you're hanging out with the same bubbles. You don't have that understanding of different cultures and the environments of others might go through. And so that same kind of, you know, biases and disparities now, you know, perpetrate outside of work, outside of the work environment. And now all these notions and, you know, it, well, it, think about, think about if we have, if we aren't hiring people who speak Spanish to be police officers, and then they have to go out and respond to an altercation that's going on with two Spanish speaking people, like right. what, you know, what kind of outcome is that going to lead to? They can't even communicate with each other. So right. Right. It's, again, it's not just about black and white though. You know, that is obviously two very large portions of our population, but we have people from a hundred some countries in this city that speak a hundred some languages in this city. Right. And if we don't have police officers, if we don't have people in the corporate sector, that can represent those and both kind of metaphorically, but also literally speak the language, mm-hmm. then, you know, it's not, it's not going to be good. And so, you know, that, that police tie-in that you made there is, is why we put such a high priority on having not only Spanish speaking officers, though, that's really important, but having officers that speak a lot of the languages that are spoken throughout our city. Nah, and Man, Mr. Larkin, it's been great to hear all this information. It's been great to see that you're, you know, not only committed to this work, but actually making actual plans to make these things change. And I think now something that we as a BPA that's trying to hone on here in the soccer world is getting owners to actually, you know, make 
sustainable actions and not just put up a social media post or put up a couple, you know, statements that they support these actual these things, but you know, to create actual change. And it's something that we've been trying to grow here in the footy world too. So I commend you for all this work for the past couple of years. I look forward to helping you on the groundwork level with my foundation and everything, meeting it linking up again in person sometime when COVID goes down, but, you know, continuously build this relationship to help this community. And it's been tremendous for me to hear this insight because you don't, you only know, you don't, you only know so much what you read upon and, you know, see what you guys are doing from the outside perspective, but to know you and, you know, build our relationship together and get this great insight has been very impactful for me. So it's been great to hear. And I really appreciate you for sharing this insight. Well, thank you for using the platform you're using because there are people that you can connect with that from my, my seat, you know, I'm not going to be able to connect to her or I'm not going to have the, the trust or the respect that you have. Um, so it takes all of us. And I think, you know, people that say, Oh, you know, athletes need to focus on, on sports. It's so idiotic because we all have a day job, right? I mean, mm -hmm. whatever it is. And no one says that anybody else that works in banking or that works, you know, as a lawyer or whatever, they should focus on their day job and not have opinions about, these things that are so impactful to our community. So right, right. this whole notion of, you know, shut up and dribble is like, what are you talking about? And, and you, you guys have a platform and you have a fan base and you have a following that can bring the message and bring, bring that focus to places that it's not going to get to otherwise. And so I think it, it, it takes all of us. And I appreciate what you guys have been doing. I think um, so many of your teammates and you, um, got so engaged so quickly on these issues. And I think, I think it's important. So um, appreciate all y'all are doing and all you'll continue to do. And, um, and I'm also super pumped that the Jacks are going to be playing at Memorial stadium again. It's going to be a whole, it's going to be a whole new uh, vibe down there. That's what I was just about to say, make sure you connect with me and I got you a ticket to any game you want to come to. Oh, I'm going to be there, man. That, that Memorial stadium is in my district. And if I was feeling, you know, real ambitious, I could even walk there from my house. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be a uh, little bit of a walk, but I'm gonna see you there uh, often then. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm gonna be there, man. Hot fan, I love to hear that. Love to hear that. I, well, I appreciate you again for hopping on my show. And like I said, too, we'll be in contact more the rest of this year and continuously build this city. It's been great to hear. It's been truly great to hear all this insight from the city, what they've been growing. I just moved down here two years ago, been trying to build this thing myself, but to hear from you actually doing this work and implementing change has been impactful for me too. So I appreciate you again. Well, we're glad to have you in Charlotte and you're not allowed to leave now. You got to stay. I know, right? I just bought a home actually. So I'm here. Good, good. You got, you're, growing, you're putting down roots, man. I like exactly. It. Exactly. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate you. you man. And we'll be in contact. Thanks, man. Of course, you have a good one. You too. Backyard Footies brought to you by the Beautiful Game Network podcast. That's bgn.fm on the internet. You can also follow them on Twitter at the BGNFM.